Would you join with me in prayer? Oh, Father in heaven, as we now turn to the proclamation, the preaching, the heralding of your word, uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless us. Lord, that the words of scripture would be a great encouragement and comfort. Also, Lord, a warning to those who are in need of that. But Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes up to the glories of your son, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would rest in them and that you would be glorified for this good news. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open them up to 2 Chronicles chapter 2. 2 Chronicles chapter 2. Now, Jordan reopened up our travel through his, the history of Israel last week. At the beginning now, we, we, uh, take, he, take us, he took us uh, to our travels there, and we find ourselves at the beginning of the reign of Solomon. Solomon, uh, the son of David. And what we savored last week together was that there was a king on the throne over God's people who at least at first treasured being a wise ruler of God's people more than he treasured treasure. What a sweet gift of God to his people. A king for his people whose greatest desire is that God's people would have a wise king. That his desire is that, th- that his people would be ruled wisely. Now, we need to ask ourselves the question, why did God give them such a gift? Why did God providentially and, and by his Holy Spirit, he, why did he make sure that the first son of David would be a man who greatly desired a wise rule for God's people. Was it because they were an unwise people that they were perhaps more unwise than the rest of the nations and so they needed it, they needed wisdom more than most people did? Perhaps it was a punishment for them. This reign, you know, if God loved them a lot, if they were great, then they would have not have needed a king. God wouldn't have given them a king. This was a consequence for being unwise, maybe. Now I'm going to put a king over you, Israel, you unwise people. Now, perhaps, though, it was maybe God gave them this king because they were wise. They were the wisest of all wise people. And God said, you know what wise people need as a reward? I'm going to give them a wise king. Maybe it was because they were holier and they, they loved the Lord more than most people did. That's maybe why he's giving them this gift of a wise king. So all of those questions, all of those answers to the question you need to know are false. And the answer to that question comes from a foreign king, a good friend of Solomon's late father, David, Hiram, king of Tyre. So if you have your Bibles, Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 2, and we're going to find in here the first point, and that is this. It is because the Lord loves his people that he anoints for them a wise king. 2 Chronicles chapter 2, we're going to read the, first, the, the whole chapter here. Now, Solomon purposed to build a temple for the name of the Lord, a royal palace for himself. And Solomon assigned 70,000 men to bear burdens and 80,000 to quarry in the hill country and 3,600 to oversee them. 
And Solomon sent word to Hiram, the king of Tyre, as you dealt with my father and sent him cedar to build him, to build himself a house to dwell in. So deal with me. Behold, I am about to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God, and dedicate it to him for the burning of incense of sweet spices before him and for the regular arrangement of the showbread and for burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbaths and the new moons and the appointed feasts of the Lord our God as ordained forever for Israel. The house that I am to build will be great for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a house? Since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him. Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? So now send me a man skilled to work in gold, silver, bronze, and iron, and in purple, crimson, and blue fabrics, trained also in engraving to be with the skilled workers who are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David, my father, provided. Send me also cedar, cypress, and algum timber from Lebanon, for I know that your servants know how to cut timber in Lebanon. And my servants will be with your servants. Prepare timber for me in abundance for the house that I am to build will be great and wonderful. I will give for your servants, the woodmen who cut timber, 20,000 cores of crushed wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine and 20,000 baths of oil. Then Hiram, the king of Tyre, answered in a letter that he sent to Solomon. Because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them. Hiram also said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. Now, I have sent a skilled man who has understanding, Huram Abi, the son of a, a woman of the daughters of Dan, and his father was a man of Tyre. He is trained to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, and wood, in purple, blue, and crimson fabrics, and, to f and fine linen, and do all sorts of engraving and execute any design that may be assigned him with your craftsmen, the craftsmen of my Lord David, your father. Now, therefore, the wheat and barley, oil and wine of which my Lord has spoken, let him send to his servants and we will cut whatever timber you need from Lebanon and bring it to you in rafts by sea to Joppa, Joppa that you may take it up to Jerusalem. When Solomon counted all the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel after the census of them that David, his father, had taken there and there were found 153,600, 70,000 of the men he assigned to bear burdens, 80,000 to quarry in the hill country, and 3,600 as overseers to make the people work. So far, our reading. You must have noticed, you must have noticed the sweet words answering the question why the Lord would give to his people. A king whose greatest desire was that the Lord's people would be led wisely. Because the Lord loves his people. Yes, they needed it desperately because they are weak and fallen sinful people. A people whose hearts are set on folly and prone to sin and naturally at war with God. This is their great need. Now this answers the question of why they needed it, but it does not answer the question of why the Lord meets that need. That is because he loves them. 
The God-given wisdom of Solomon would lead to the glory and wealth and honor and safety and joy and peace of God's people. But Solomon's reign would end ultimately in the end not be characterized by wisdom. Nevertheless, the wisdom of Solomon and the glory and peace that it would lead to, it was a great blessing for the people. And the reign and wisdom of Solomon would function as God's assurance that this was the ultimate goal for his people. This is what they were to look for in their ideal king. As king after king after king after king after king would come in Israel's history. This is what they were to look forward to. For in the, the Messiah to end all messiahs. The great and final son of David, if he were ever to come. And the Lord Jesus Christ was the great and final son of David. And he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It was something that he had eternally, something that he had had. But he took on flesh, he humbled himself, taking on a human nature, adding human nature to his person. And, and in that human nature, he took on the form of a, a servant, the servant for God's people. He humbled himself to the point, even the point of death on a cross, taking damnation for sinners. And because of that, the Lord God exalted him, a man, right? He, take, he took on humanity now to his person, a man exalted to the, the name above all names, exalted him gloriously. But he humbly chose first the wise leadership of God's covenant people, his bride, first humble and then glory to follow. Now it is very good for us to look at why we need this wise and humble reign of the Lord Jesus Christ that he would die for our sins. It's very good at, to look at why we need this. Our wickedness and our sin, our folly that has led to us to be now enemies of God. It is very good for us to look at why we needed it. But oh, church is very good to look at why he met that need. Why did he save her? Why did this Messiah, the great and final son of David, why did he come in humility first rather than in glory? And the answer that screams from the pages of scripture is love. He loved his church, even though she was an enemy of him. It was the kind of love that was not provoked. It was the kind of love that wasn't prompted. God's wrath is always provoked if it is ever to come, but his love is never provoked or prompted. This is the kind of love that, that brought Solomon to the throne in wisdom and which would ultimately bring Christ to the throne over the people of God. Not because those blessed by Solomon or Jesus' reign were the most wise, so that they prompted God to give them a wise king whose reign would lead to great joy and peace. Because those under Solomon and the Lord Jesus' headship were not more wise than other people. It wasn't their love for God because God showed his love for us that while we were sinners, he loved us first. This is highlighted by the 
the, the Lord Jesus Christ? Why did God send his son to be the Messiah? And why the Messiahship, the, the kind of reign that God chose for him? And we see this contained in the words of 2 Chronicles very well. And in, in, in verse 1, Solomon, he says, purpose to build himself a palace and a temple for the Lord. We understand how Solomon needed a palace, or at least he needed a place to live. But the Lord, as we see in verse 6, he doesn't need a temple. He doesn't need a home. He needs nothing. This wasn't for the Lord's need. It was for his people's need. And why would the Lord meet that need? It was because of love. And we see this in John chapter 3, verse 16, words that are very familiar to many of us. But we get more of the richness of this love if we read this in context. So we're going to read John 3, 16 to 18, and then also verse 36. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Brothers and sisters, unbelieving guests, the world in, and all people, every single one of them are condemned under the wrath of God. So then why would a holy God send a king who puts a wise reign for his people that results in blessing and honor and glory and, and peace and life for them. Why would he send such a king? Because he loves them and nothing about them makes him love them. He has simply set his affection upon them. And so he gives them a king who does these things for them. The question is not whether or not Jesus Christ is your Lord. He is Lord. Hiram was right. The Lord made Solomon the son of David king. Israel didn't. The people of Tyre certainly didn't. The Babylonians and the Philistines certainly didn't. And the people of Canada don't make Christ Lord. He is Lord. The question is whether he is Lord for your blessing or for your condemnation. And so how does one become a citizen of this king rather than an enemy of this king? Surely it's by making yourself worthy. No. By faith, by trusting in this promise that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead on the third day. From repenting, from turning away from this madness of not wanting God as your king. From thinking that it is somehow better to be kingless to be independent, to turn away from that foolishness and trust the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. And then you are the beloved children of the king who benefit from this wise reign which will lead in glory and honor and life and peace eternally. And that brings us then to our second point. We know that the Lord loves his people and that's why he gives them this king. But our second point is this, the king builds a temple where a sacrifice will be bound to the altar and face the wrath of God for our sins. And so the chronicler, he mentions two lovely details. 
just sprinkles them on, just casually sprinkles them on from the, the historical record. And he gives them this, the, uh, that the, about the gift of, of Solomon's reign. Ornan's threshing floor and Mount Moriah. Ornan's threshing floor and Mount Moriah. Where did Solomon build this temple that he was put on the throne to build? Ornan's threshing floor and Mount Moriah. Why did he do this? Because God loved him. Now where the temple was built was meant to preach sweet and terrible words to God's beloved people. And so we're going to turn in our Bibles. We're going to pick it up where we left off in 2 Chronicles. Now we're going to look at chapter 3. We're going to just read the first two verses. Okay? 2 Chronicles 3, 1 and 2. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where David had prepared, had appeared, sorry, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Now, as we walked through first Chronicles, we read the terrifying event where God focused his judgment on his people on whether David, their Messiah, would be obedient when tested or not. And David failed. And a great and terrible judgment fell from the Lord on his people that day. The angel of the Lord, if you remember, as we went through there, he stood before Jerusalem with sword of wrath lifted above the city, but God froze his arm in the air so that the Messiah could quickly put an altar and a sacrifice so that it would fall, the wrath of God would fall on that sacrifice. And that was at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And instead of God's people in Israel in Jerusalem perishing, that sacrifice perished instead of them. But we're also told that it happened on Mount Moriah. Hold on. That word appears only one place in the Bible, one other place. And that is in the event where God tells uh, Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. The chronicler is pleading with us to pick up our Bibles and read that passage. And we are gladly going to follow that. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. And we're going to read <clears throat> verses 1 to 14. Genesis 22, 1 to 14. Mount Moriah, guys. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the young men, to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and will come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took it in his hand, took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, they bet both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went, they went both of them together. 
When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar where he laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But while, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. We'll close scripture there for a bit. So it is a terrible and lovely passage for the people of Israel to remember this story for the, the people of God were for all intents and purposes, they were in Isaac. He was the one who was promised to be their father. And if he perished, so too they would perish. He represented them. And they were in Isaac doomed to bear the wrath of God as a burnt offering. Now, what does that mean? What is a burnt offering? consumed by the wrath of God for their sin. A burnt offering was killed and then burnt completely. It wasn't eaten. It was burnt, consumed by fire, representing the wrath of God for sin. And it was right and proper. And it was the just fate of God's people because they were sinners doomed to be consumed by the judgment of God, unless the Lord would provide a substitute so I want you to notice from that passage, to remember from that passage, that Abram was confident that Isaac would come down from that mountain alive. Notice that, that the Lord, uh, that, that he told the Lord, he told Isaac, sorry, that the Lord would provide a sacrifice. He just didn't know how it would be yet. Notice also that Isaac was bound to the altar, fixed to the altar so he would not pull himself off. Notice also how the Lord while the arm of, the, of, of Abraham holding the knife was in the air, how he postponed that sacrifice until a substitute could be put in place, fixed to the altar as a substitute. Just like the sacrifice that David made on the threshing floor of Ornan. This is the spot where Solomon, the wise king, provided because God loves his people, would build the temple. Now Solomon, as he reaches out to Hiram, he mentions a few pieces of the temple, but he doesn't mention all of them. He sort of cherry picks some of these. And the, the chronicler also later is going to highlight a few items, not all. We see he, he highlights some of them. He highlights the altar where the burnt offerings were to constantly be made. He highlights this this altar. Animals were going to be bound and killed and then consumed by fire as substitutes provided by the Lord for the sin of his people. Now this altar had horns on the corners of it. The, the purpose of the horns was, was anchors to bind the, the animal before it was sacrificed so that the animal would not excuse itself. The animal would not change its mind. I got to get off of this altar. 
No, those horns were the anchors to fix that substitute so that the sacrifice would not come off until it was finished. So friends, if you are here or listening and you've not repented of your sin and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the great sacrifice, the great and final son of David, the Lord of heaven and earth, then this burnt offering of an animal completely consumed by fire, it is very uncomfortable. It's very disturbing. But it is a picture of what awaits you when you stand before God in judgment, when he returns or when you die. There will be no escaping it. No plea you could make, no argument that you could make that you didn't deserve it because you have no sin or maybe not enough sin. Because you like Israel, like all people, like Isaac and Abraham and Solomon himself are guilty of breaking God's laws. Not just breaking them with your hands, but also your words and also your heart, which God sees and he judges perfectly. You will be consumed by the judgment and wrath of God in a way that this burnt offering is merely a shadow of. But the Lord in his great love has provided a substitute. And that he has promised to accept this substitute instead of you. The Lord Jesus Christ who bore the wrath of God for the sins of his church, his people on the cross. And who died and who was buried and who rose again on the third day. And this was God's public declaration that he did accept this sacrifice from Christ. And so you should put your confidence in it. Christ was bound. Just like Isaac was bound and those burnt offerings were bound. He was bound, but not in the same way. Christ demonstrated very clearly that no one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. He could have avoided the cross. We see this as we read the eyewitness testimony over and over again. He could have avoided the cross, but he didn't. He willingly laid down his life because he loved to obey his father and he loved the church. What was the horns of the altar of Christ's sacrifice? The anchor that bound him so that he did not get off the cross. We learn what these anchors were that bound Christ to the cross when we read Hebrews 12, 1 to 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, here it is, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the glory or of the throne of God. What was it that drove Christ to the cross and which bound him, which anchored him there so he would endure it? The joy set before him. That's why he endured the cross. That's what kept him on the cross rather than changing his mind. What do you mean joy, Derek? I thought that Christ was eternally God and he had joy in its fullness from eternity past. Oh, it was the joy of his church. 
Because God had given him this church. It was his body and this marriage, this everlasting covenant. And so he considers the church's joy as his own joy. And so when the church suffers, he considers that his suffering, his church's guilt, he even considers the church's guilt as his own. The church's death, that's mine. This is the joy that was set before him. The joy that he would share with his bride, which he loved with an everlasting love. And that was what anchored him to the cross that held him there until he could cry out, it is finished. Dear unbelieving guests, your sin is not atoned for. And you have condemnation from God hanging over you. So run to Christ, the Lord and Savior. Humble yourself. And he promises he will turn no one away. Dear Christian, your sin is atoned for. And it will never be punished again. Your sin is forgiven because the Lord God loves you. And he has given this joy to you at great cost. The joy of God's love. The joy because of God's love is yours and in every circumstance and is the fullness of joy and it cannot be stolen or lost or diminished because of the suffering that Christ gave on himself for you on the cross and because of his great Love. And that brings us to our third point. The Messiah secures the fellowship, cleansing, nourishment, life, and light of God for his beloved people. Not only does the chronicler highlight the altar and the burnt offering, he highlights other articles in the temple which serve for the glory of God and the joy of his affectionately beloved people. And we can read about this if we pick up 2 Chronicles chapter 3. We're going to Look at what is highlighted for us of these pieces of the temple that help us understand and drink of the joy that Christ purchased for us with his blood. Second Chronicles chapter three, verse three. These are Solomon's measurements for building the house of God. The length, its cubits of the old standard was 60 cubits, its breadth, 20 cubits. The vestibule in front of the nave in the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house and its height was 120 cubits. He overlaid it in the inside with pure gold. In the, na- the nave he lined with cypress and covered it with fine gold and made palms and chains on it. He adorned the house with settings of precious stones. The gold was gold of parvame. So he lined the house with gold, its beams, its threshold, its walls, its doors, and he carved cherubim on the walls. And he made the most holy place. Its length corresponding to the breadth of the house was 20 cubits. Its breadth was 20 cubits. He overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold. The weight of gold for the nails was 50 shekels. And he overlaid the upper chambers with gold. In the most holy place, he made two cherubim of wood and overlaid them with gold. The wings of the cherubim together extended 20 cubits. One wing of the other of five cubits touched the wall of the house. Its other wing, the five of five cubits, touched the wing of the other cherub. And of this cherub, one wing of five cubits touched the wall of the house, and the other wing, also five cubits, was joined to the wing of the first cherub. The wing of these cherubim extended 20 cubits. 
The cherubim stood on their feet facing the nave and he made the veil of blue and purple and crimson fabrics and fine linen and he worked cherubim on it. In front of the house, he made two pillars 35 cubits high with a capital of five cubits on the top of each. He made chains like a necklace and put them on the tops of the pillars. And he made a hundred pomegranates and put them on the chains. He set up the pillars in front of the temple. One in the south, one in the north, one, and the one in the south called Jachin, the other on the north, or sorry, and that on the north, Boaz. He made the altar of bronze <clears throat> 20 cubits long and 20 cubits wide and 10 cubits high, and he made a sea of cast metal. He was round, 10 cubits from brim to brim, and five cubits high, and a line of 30 cubits measuring its circumference. Under it were fi- figures of gourds, for 10 cubits can come passing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows cast with, with when it was cast. It stood on 12 oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, three, three facing east. The sea was on them and all their rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a hand breadth and its brim was like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held 3,000 3, baths. He also made 10 basins in which to wash and set five on the north side, five on the south side, five on the north side. In these, they were to rinse off what was used for the burnt offering and the sea was for the priests to wash in. And he made 10 golden lampstands as prescribed and he set them on the temple. Five on the south side, five on the north. He also made 10 tables and placed them in the temple. Five on the north, south side, five on the north. He made a hundred basins of gold. He made the courts of the priests and the great courts and the doors of the courts and overlaid their doors with bronze. And he set the sea in the southeast corner of the house. Hiram also made the pots, the shovels, the basins. So Hiram finished the work that he did for King Solomon on the, of the house of God, on the house of God. The two pillars, pillars, the bowls and the two capitals on the top of the pillars and the two lattice works to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on top of the pillars and the 400 pomegranates for the two lattice works, two rows of pomegranates for each lattice work to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were in on the pillars. And he made the stands also and the basins on the stands and the one and the one sea and the 12 oxen underneath it, the pots, the shovels, the forks, and all the equipment for these Huram Abbey made of burnished bronze for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. In the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them in the clay ground between Succoth and Zerida. Solomon made all these things in great quantities for the weight of the bronze was not sought. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of God, the golden altar, the tables for the bread of presence, the lampstands and their lamps of pure gold to burn before the inner sanctuary as prescribed the flowers, the lamps, the tongues of purest gold, the snuffers, basins, dishes for incense and, and fire pans of pure gold and the sockets of the temple for the inner doors of the most holy place for the doors on the nave of the temple were of gold. We'll end our reading there. They're drawing our attention to a few of these things that were in the temple. The first is the table of the showbread that I want to draw our attention to. They said bread, which was to be fresh every week, a visible promise that the purpose of the temple and of the sacrifice was fellowship with God, not merely legal forgiveness, 
Not less than legal forgiveness, but more than that, to enjoy fellowship with the Lord, to enjoy a restored relationship with the God who loved them enough to make sure that their sins were atoned for. Also, in connection with, with this was the altar of incense to flow a sweet aroma rising up from the temple to the Lord God. It represented the prayers that the Lord accepted this, that it was not something that disgusted the Lord. It wasn't merely something that the Lord simply accepted as acceptable, but something that was pleasing to him. He loved what the temple represented. He loved the fellowship with his people. And we're going to spend some time drinking of that joy next week as we look at what this says about prayer. So brothers and sisters, do not neglect that sweet joy provided by the Lord, by the sacrifice of Christ, not merely forgiveness, but knowing God as father, fellowship with him in his presence for joy rather than judgment, enjoying the seat at the table of God, which rightly belongs to Christ. Take of it, eat of it, drink of it. Take time to enjoy and delight yourself in the presence and fellowship and love and relationship of God, your Father. This fellowship with Christ paid for with his blood because he loved you. The sea in the wash basins, you have this huge sea of, of metal. It's also highlighted. Here you can see the significance of washing. It was God's visible promise, just like baptism, that the people who belonged in that temple, the people who those sacrifices were for, not merely forgiven, but washed. God intended to wash them. This is a visible promise, visible promise of the cleansing, the sanctifying work of God. So dear brothers and sisters, this is also the work of Christ to wash you. Yes, to forgive you, but also to wash you, to transform you bit by bit into holiness until the day when you meet him face to face and that work will be complete. You will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye made holy, not just positionally, not just declared holy and treated that way by God, but actually wholly free from all sin. And this is not something you do to earn God's love and favor. It is a gift. Holiness, this washing itself, even that is a gift. And we tend to think of this as a way to pay God back, but it is not. This is a gift, holiness and washing that God provided for you in the blood of Christ. It's a gift. Holiness is better than sin, not just not just that it is morally better, but it is better in every way. Freed from an enemy who wants to rob you of your joy. And Christ paid for this with his blood. So dear brothers and sisters, crave holiness. Trust the spirit of God in you. Given by Christ to transform you, he will keep that promise to make you more holy. Crave it and trust him for it. Now the lampstands are also highlighted and they represent the light of God's presence shining in the darkness. Did you notice how shiny everything was in the temple? 
gold and gold and gold and gold and gold. And if it wasn't gold, it was burnished bronze, very shiny things. But what do you need to have these things be shiny? You couldn't plug them in. They didn't glow on their own account. They need the light of God's presence to be shed abroad on them. And this is the purpose of the lampstands to demonstrate the presence of God, to shine the light that reflected off of these things. I'm sure it was blinding. So not only were these things that represented the gifts of God's presence with them, the the table, the altar, the cherubim, all these things represent the sweetness of God's affection and love for his people. But without the light of the lampstands, you couldn't enjoy them. You couldn't know them. You couldn't see them. You couldn't delight in them. And so he shines this bright light so that the relationship with God that the temple was meant to demonstrate that was purchased by the Lord Jesus could not only be there, but also known and enjoyed. And brothers and sisters, Christ is the light of the world. What these lampstands did in part, Christ does in fullness. And as Brother Cal read in Romans, Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. Those words, you can maybe remember some of that older English language that it was the love of, Christ, love of Christ was shed abroad in our hearts. This idea that it, it fills our hearts. Every nook and cranny in the same way that the light of the lampstands shone the light and presence of God on all the different articles of the temple showing the love of God for his people. So it is with the light of Christ, the light of the world. To see and enjoy The Holy Spirit is given by Christ, sent by Christ and the Father into the hearts of those purchased by the the Lord Jesus' blood so that they would know and enjoy the gifts that Christ, the new temple, has purchased for them. And this is why Paul will pray over and over again in his letters. I pray that you, that the eyes of your heart would be opened further, that the, the light of Christ would open up your eyes to see what is yours in Christ. That you would grow in your knowledge of the love and affection of God that it it can't be measured, but at least your eyes are more and more and more open to grasp the fullness of the gift that Christ, the temple, and now his body, the the church is his body, which is also now the temple where his, his presence and his love and holiness is is known, opening up blind eyes. This is what the Spirit does by the Word of God. The lamp shine, stand, uh, sheds light abroad, and so does the Word of Christ through the Holy Spirit in the hearts of believers and also in the church. He, the head, the temple, and his church, the body, now the great temple of God. And so friend, if you do not know him, run to him and be saved. And Christian, cling to him with great joy. Why did God provide 
for his people, a king who would reign in wisdom for their joy. To quote Hiram, king of Tyre, it is because the Lord loves his people. Church, let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice that instead of sending us the king that we deserve, the one who would come first in glory to consume us with your glory and your judgment for our sins, you first sent us the one who would wisely reign in love for us to satisfy the judgment and and wrath for our sins, Lord, to be that burnt offering for us. And we are grateful, Lord, that it was for the joy set before him that he endured that cross, that he willingly laid down his life for his church, his beloved, his body, whose joy he considered his own joy because of that eternal covenant. And Lord, I pray that we would delight in that joy and in that love. Lord, I pray that your spirit would further and further open our eyes the way that the the lampstands did in the temple to illumine these gifts of your love and affection. I pray, Lord, that we would love you because you loved us first, and Lord, that in our love that we would obey you, trusting you that you have made us holy and leaning on you for that holiness. Lord, I pray for those who are here who are not yet yours. Shed light on the fact that their sin is not atoned for, that they would run to Christ and be saved. We pray that you do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond to the preaching of the word by worshiping the Lord in song.